and welcome to the Denver Diatribe, a weekly discussion of culture, news, and stuff as it pertains to Denver, Colorado, the wildest metropolis between Thornton and Centennial. This week, we discuss fracking in Colorado, the collapse of CU's journalism school, and how to talk like you're on NPR. With us in the studio are special guests Grace Hood, reporter for... KUNC, Northern Colorado's public radio station, and Vince Darkangelo, award-winning journalist and publisher, along with freelance writer Jared King Mayer, and I am Joel Warner, staff writer for Westward. So let's get on to it. First, we're going to talk about uh, fracking. Wait, wait, Joel, I think that first we need to disclose that uh, Grace and Vince, we don't know them at all. We're not friends with them. No, not at all. It's not that you used to perhaps work in the same office for them at the... uh, the reporting sweatshop known as the Boulder Weekly back in the day. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. You know, I don't know where you read such such wild allegations about such. No, things. I'm saying that w- that we're disclosing that that's that's not true. Okay. So. Yeah, not true. Yeah, whatever you find on the interwebs on this stuff is just it's completely made up. Is this like to catch a predator? Are you trying to <laughs> help me for having worked for a awful publication? That <laughs> yeah. Well, I think I think that working for Boulder Weekly for any amount of time will make anyone feel like a sex offender <laughs> and a pedophile. Just the uh, just the sulking and the yeah. and the slinkiness that just is involved in that job. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, all our listeners who actually still work for Boulder Weekly. But uh, you know, back to the news at hand. Uh, I think we're going to start talking about um, hydro fracking in Colorado, which has been in the news a lot lately thanks to a new uh, documentary that I think was nominated for an Academy Award as well as a big New York Times investigative series. Uh, Jared, I think you know a bit more about that. Yeah, fracking, it's short for hydraulic fracturing, which is a new technology that's been in use by oil and gas companies probably over the last five years, but it's, it's gotten a lot of attention in the last couple years because of concerns and allegations that the the method by which they're trying to extract natural gas and oil from oil shale and, and other places in the Appalachians and in, in Colorado, particularly on the Western Slope, is seeping all of these chemicals into uh, groundwater. It's causing these types of uh, uh, fumes and other things which are making people sick. And uh, yeah, so this, this documentary Gasland came out last year and got a lot of attention on the indie film circuit at Sundance and uh, it's caused a lot of uh, hubbub because of some pretty dramatic scenes that were contained in that movie. I'll, I can go into that in yeah, a second. But. You know, there was one scene in particular, you know, I think it was actually based here in Colorado. It's, you know, it's one of those scenes that I assume uh, documentary filmmakers just you know, they kind of dream of scenes like this where they're with some Colorado uh, like farmer or something and he put up a lighter to his water faucet and then turned on the water and literally there was this huge like fireball of explosion you know it was based in Colorado I think that was the scene right that kind of got a lot of yeah it was in Well County and when you look at the trailer and stuff that's that's the scene that he uh, the filmmaker plays over and over again is the exclamation point to to what the heck is going on uh, there's been a lot of pushback from the uh, oil and gas industry and you know doing all of these counter investigations to this documentary and also what the New York Times has found saying well there there hasn't been any real evidence or proof that these hydro hydraulic fracturing methods are causing some of these issues uh and kind of took the the documentary filmmaker to task for maybe some holes in his reporting it's kind of like a, a Michael Moore type of uh documentary it's pretty engaging but i do think that there may be 
so, some of the things that some people have pointed out about, you know, it wasn't exactly a, a PBS frontline <laughs> investigation, this thing, but you know, it, it, it pushed, it's pushed this issue and these concerns up to the, up into the headlines. So, you know, we can take it as it, as it lay. Now, Grace, have you been looking into this issue at all? Of Northern Colorado? I haven't reported that much on it, actually, um, but it's certainly an issue in Northern Colorado. Um, you know, there's a lot, uh, actually, I don't, I don't really know how it's playing out in Northern Colorado. <laughs> um, so, but it's a huge industry up there, right? I mean, you drive around up in Well County and there's, you know, all of these new uh, oil rigs being set up and you can see the things that were pumping the stuff out of the ground, right? One, another interesting thing is just thinking about kind of the ripple effects. I mean, we're talking about um, carcinogens and concerns about the water, but, you know, the other issue um, has to do with, um, you know, just these oil and gas companies acquiring all these water rights and particularly what that means for farmers and the agricultural industry because, you know, you hear about municipalities buying up water rights, but... Um, you know, oil and gas can outpay any municipality when it comes to water. So I think that's something I'm really going to be looking at, see how that plays out in the coming years. Yeah, so maybe we should actually explain what hydraulic fracturing is, because even though it has a very cool name, fracking, isn't that? Yeah, fracking is a good name. Frac- fragging is what they call it in, in video games where you, where but you no, kill I someone, right? But no, I think right? frack some like, science fiction word to frack. Well, anyway, hydraulic fracturing is what they do is they'll drill down thousands of feet into the ground and then often then turn the drill bit horizontal and then drive it sort of parallel to the surface to get at uh, these veins of either oil shale or other deposits. And then they create mini explosions underneath the earth to fracture the um, the, the area beneath the surface to, to break apart some of these deposits. And then in the case of hydraulic fracturing, they will then pump this mixture of chemicals and other types of uh, solvents and this concoction of crap into the in deep into the ground into these things and then it goes up into these fractures and um, draws out some of this either natural gas or oil or these other deposits and then then once once those are um, they, they yank the water out and then they have to do something with all that that mixture of chemicals and so sometimes they'll uh, you know, either ship it off to some water treatment plants to try and get it cleaned up, or they'll sort of let it sit in these uh, open pits with with sealants on there. So it's it is a, it is a new method, and to me, it's like one of these new things. Like once you actually see the technology involved in this, it's kind of like with the deep water horizon and, and BP when people started to see like just just as a scientific and engineering feat, you're like, holy shit! How do they even come up with this stuff? Yeah. And hydraulic fracturing, when you when you actually look at the technology behind it, it's actually really impressive. But it also underscores for me, like, I wonder really how much regulators even know enough about this technology to accurately assess whether or not it's it's yeah. safe. And I think that's the thing. If you look at how much it's grown, I mean, this explosive growth, and then you look at regulators and i mean it's it's like regulators have thousands of wells that they're responsible for investigating i mean there's no way they can keep up with everything yeah, yeah like i definitely think that this concept of like of it being like a brand new technology really is what's what's kind of what's kind of drawing these concerns i mean we we've known about this stuff down there for a long long time i mean like, theoretically the amount of natural kind of natural gas down there is what is supposed to be enough to like power the country for for decades right yeah. but 
no one, you know, and theoretically, you know, then we wouldn't be so dependent on foral, uh, foreign, uh, you know, resources and stuff. But for the longest time, nobody knew, like, how to get the natural gas that was, like, solidified down there. So so now, finally, they're coming up with these, with these new technologies, which I went in is great, theoretically, you know, that we finally might have some homegrown kind of concepts. But yeah, but Grace, as you point out, I mean, yeah, like, as always the case, you yeah. know, um, you know, where the corporations can move faster than the regulators can and I think, control them. You know, and then the, just the great irony of, you know, the fact that the whole reason why we're pursuing this natural gas is because supposedly it's better for the environment. But, you know, the trade-off is if we have all these carcinogens and radium in our water, is that re- are we really any better off, yeah. the whole situation? Yeah, and I, I think that I, I'm still a little bit on the fence I think that there's a lot of reasons to be concerned in a lot of these horror stories of these ranchers who, like, have cows giving birth to, to like, headless calves and, you know, their cat's hair falling out and everyone feels sick. I thought that was it, due to the UFOs, though. Well, I'm yeah, the UFOs are in on this conspiracy, too. But oh, they're fracking, too? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay. They're actually in the earth. That's that's where we're trying to get to it. But anyway, let, let's, from. Yeah, let, let's leave that aside for a second. The thing that that is shocking to me is just how quickly these types of this type of drilling is occurring right now. I was reading this thing in um, an article, I think it was in the Greeley Tribune just last week, and I wrote a, a blog about it for Westward. But the number of these horizontal, they call them horizontal wells, that what I was describing as they drill down and then they go yeah. horizontal. Yeah. The number of permits for that has absolutely exploded. In 2009, there was something like just 17 requests for these permits. And then one of these wells hit pay dirt and since then, there was like this rush to do the drill these types of wells in Well County. And in 2010, there was 210 um, permits that were approved by the state for these types of horizontal wells, which will go like up to two miles horizontal, like out in any direction. And then already this year, there's been like 35 or 40 just in January that huh. were approved. And, you know, this is all just in Well County alone. We're not even talking about Wyoming and on the western slope. It's it's going crazy. So a few weeks ago, there was this big New York Times investigative series that kind of looked at questions about, you know, what was going into the into the groundwater and the rivers, thanks to the runoff from these wells. That story really focused a lot on Pennsylvania mm-hmm. and New York around there and stuff. And it just kind of mentioned Colorado in passing that there have been some reports of contamination here in Colorado and some other states. So my question is, I mean, where does Colorado lie in terms of the rest of the country in terms of like how many wells are being, you know, being drilled right now, like, you know, reports of contaminants, et cetera, et cetera. Like, is Colorado kind of one of the main spots for this? I mean, I know we're in the top 10 in terms of the number of fracking wells that exist, but, I mean, Pennsylvania is obviously, I think they're number one. They're right up there. Yeah, and that's, I think that that's maybe where the majority of the concerns are for that, but that also might be because it's a little bit more populous than the western slope. I mean, out there in Garfield County, I've seen some overhead satellite maps of, you know, you can even sometimes see this on Google Earth, I think. If you zoom into certain, you know, 4,000 acre areas, it looks like a you spider web. You can, it looks like the oh, wow. spider web of roads and, um, you know, underneath uh, the Rhone Plateau, there's there's big efforts to, to push it out there. I think that Colorado is, is pretty high on the list in terms of 
these d- drilling for natural now, gas. I don't know if for hydro. I mean, I mean, isn't that one of the concerns also about kind of some of these drilling operations going into some of these roadless areas? They're supposed to be protected. Yeah, I mean, the road so, plateau was a big uh, was a big stink over that. So, years ago. so let's see. Um, these operations are going to use up the rest of Colorado's water. They are going to mess up our natural parks and our wildlands. They could be uh, contaminating our river supplies with radioactivity. Any other really great things that we know about fracking? Well, I mean, I, I can say a great thing that you isn't sarcastic, but <laughs> but the, the amount of revenue that it brings into yeah. the state is is massive. And if Colorado did not have these types of natural resources that were being tapped right now, the budget deficit would be even greater than okay. the $1 billion. And that might be one, another one of the reasons why this is such a sensitive political issue. If you're in one of these counties... It's a it's a huge boom for employment for the local economy. Are you going to be really the the politician that stands up there and takes out the one viable industry yeah. in your county that is paying some of these landowners yeah. well, I, what I was tens of thousands of dollars? From the the Times expose was just this also this really internal push pull within the EPA about regulation. I mean, it was. Obviously, there's people in there who share the documents who feel like there needs to be more regulation, but for whatever reason, some of those studies that they had cited just weren't getting out. Now to move on to industry that, you know, that isn't bringing as many jobs into this state as hydrofracking, which is something that the four of us have all been involved in in one shape or another, and that's journalism, specifically the collapse of CU's uh, journalism school. Now, Grace, you've written some on this, or reported some on this, if you could kind of get us up to speed about what's happening yeah. at CU. Well, what's what the latest, I mean, this process has dragged on for almost a year. Um, the CU started the, what they called a discontinuance process um, in August, and I think that ruffled a lot of people's feathers, just the term discontinuance when they were saying, oh, we're just going to evaluate our journalism school. So I, what I found kind of most interesting is that um, for whatever reason, because of the, you know, academic terms that they needed, they had to use that term discontinuance, but, um, you know, really, yeah. yeah. So, but I mean, Joel just called it the collapse of the journalism school. I've in other blogs most called it the it destruction of the journalism school. So that's incorrect. What does discontinuance mean? Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyone knows what the hell it means. I think that's the challenge. I think, you know... Discontinuance, I, I think they're very much going to, everyone that I talked to at the end of February said, journalism is going to be alive and well at CU. Um, but here, just listen to Because it's been this, doing so great lately. <laughs> just listen to this clip. I mean, this shows you how confusing, um, you know, the message out of CU. So, so this is a clip for, from your reporting on this. Yeah, I, okay. I, the reporting, and I talked to um, Linda Shoemaker, and she is... A member, she's on the advisory board for the current journalism school. So, journalism education will not end on campus. Journalism education will be improved on campus. The only thing that's going to end is a standalone school of journalism and mass communications. So, how confusing is that? <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. So, what? So, what does she mean? That okay, alive so, and well. So, here, here's what I've learned: is that um, there's kind of like this academic shuffling that's going on you have something that's called a school which you have the journalism school they want to turn it into a department like a history department Mm. you know journalism Uh. department 
But um, in order to do that, they have to go through this process they're calling discontinuance, which, um, you know, it just seemed like very, as soon as they used that term, it really elevated the discussion. It became very public very quickly and, um, you know, got a lot of critics very quickly. Well, you know, I think in some ways that was, that was probably a good thing that, you know, that, you know, using, using kind of this kind of, kind of inflammatory term like that, I think brings up the bigger discussion, which is the value of these sort of journalism schools today when, you know, when there are serious questions going on about the future of the entire business. Yeah, well, I think I think the other problem that journalism school has is that there's kind of this divide between media studies professors and journalism professors. And, I mean, another thing that someone cited to me was Jim Sheeler, who won a Pulitzer Prize, when there was an opening last year, um, you know, tenure track position, yeah. he wasn't even one of the the final candidates. Yeah. And, and, and he's I, a, and we should say, a, a Pulitzer Prize winning writer, formerly yeah. of the yeah. Rocky Mountain News. It's amazing stuff, and you know, and he got offered a job somewhere else instead. So he left because he got this great cushy job somewhere. Yeah, now he's an endowed chair, I think, at Case Western. Yeah, I mean, he's. Yeah, sitting very pretty, but I think that raised some red flags for some people. And when you say media, I mean, there's journalism and then there's the media studies professor. That makes me think of Professor Michael Tracy and the John Mark Carr debacle with John Benet Ramsey. Do you guys remember that a few years ago where Michael Tracy had apparently uh, discovered the the murder of uh, John Benet Ramsey and it was this creepy pedophile named uh, John Mark Card who apparently confessed to it and it turned into this explosion and then and it turned out it was all Thailand yeah it, it was all it was all a caviar. yeah it was all this uh, <laughs> no, King Prawns oh King Prawns King Prawns <laughs> come on come on yeah. get prawns. God. and it was all this uh, you know these these severe missteps by this journalism professor and his penchant for getting media attention for himself now yeah. I mean we can we can keep kind of poking fun at CU uh, journalism school which which literally I could do all day if I you know if I my druthers <laughs> But but I want to get back to the bigger question, which is, I mean, what do we think about what the journalism school should be doing today? You know, and do we still see value well, in this type of school? I I think that's that's the other problem with the journalism school right now is that the education is so compartmentalized. So, you know, you you know, when we think about our jobs, we're posting things on the web. I mean, it's just crossing all these platforms. And I mean, still today, it seemed my impression when I talked to students was that. You're taking a class and you're learning just how to write. You're not talking about writing for the web or some of these other things. And so I think the education just really hasn't caught up with what we do on, on the, you know, every day. And a lot of this stuff, all of us, I don't think any of us have journalism educations and we all learned on the job. Joel does. Yes. I, yeah. Thorough, thorough journalism <laughs> education. I took one journalism class. You have a class. history degree. Yes, I have a history degree. Okay, you have a history degree. Vinny? Well, yeah, yeah. I have a psychology degree. Psychology. History. <laughs> okay, I was, an, I was an English major at CU specializing in creative creative writing, and I had this little rant I posted on Westward, uh, just this fifteen one of those 15-minute blogs where I bitched about how they wouldn't let me into the school, and so therefore I was – it was pretty much <laughs> – You me showed sh- them. It was yeah. me shaking my fist years later, which uh, <laughs> managed to get some – actual assistant professors there at CU pretty pretty angry at me. Um, but Vince, I mean, I want to, I'm not convinced because, I mean, yes, I mean, you know you kind of majored in psychology. Now you're you're in a creative writing program now up at CSU. So I, I want to talk about your program and your thoughts about kind of the value. Yes, I know it's not, say, quote, unquote, like journalism, but you have been doing a lot of like nonfiction writing classes. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I want to hear from you about like the value that you've seen kind of going back to school after working in journalism for, you know, a good number of years. 
Well, it's interesting. There is certainly uh, a value to that. I'd actually like to turn it toward a, a conference, a, a writing conference I went to uh, last year. It was actually in Denver, the AWP conference. And there was a nonfiction panel with Jim Sheeler and uh, one of my professors from CSU and Rebecca Sklute and some other folks. And one of the gentlemen on the, the panel talked about his, he had a degree in journalism and now he, he works uh with Radiolab, and he was talking about how his program no longer offers a journalism as a major. You can minor in journalism, yeah. but you can't major in it anymore at his school. And he felt that was a good thing because the best journalists aren't people who go to journalism school and they learn sort of this color-by-numbers approach to journalism. They're people who come from other disciplines, anthropology and other humanities and social sciences where they learned critical thinking, they learned research techniques, they learned these skills that aren't directly what you think of when you think of journalism. Uh, but when you go into journalism from those backgrounds, you have a different understanding of humanity and this uh, ability to relate to people and to approach research with a critical mind um, that's a little different than journalism school. Now, not having gone to journalism school or taking any journalism class. I don't know how accurate this is. I can't speak to that. Well, I mean, that's definitely the direction that CU's headed. I mean, the current recommendation by DeStefano is, you know, you can't do journalism as a standalone minor, minor as an undergrad. You can double major in it or you can minor in it. So do you guys think that's a good thing? I, I think that's absolutely the way to go. You've seen some of these other really high-profile schools like Medill and Columbia you know they're not discontinuing their programs. I think they're, they're they were being a little bit more uh, l looking forward uh, as a way to set up alternative schools where you actually major in computer programming and journalism, right? You you or you do digital studies and journalism. You're learning like two things at once because yeah, once once you learn the basics of you know how to interview people, how to you know write accurately, how to do fact checking. After that, I mean. It's pretty much, are you going to be a person who's talented and interested in the world and have these other skills, like, you know, how to build your own website? Yeah. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm like looking around <laughs> trying to figure out how to, how to do that. I mean, I'm like reading technology books rather than books on journalism these days. And if I was going back to school, that's the first thing I'd be looking at. What other things are you going to be teaching me to be able to survive in this type of media landscape where, I mean, there is no one path. You pretty much have to carve it out yourself. And unless you have a multitude of skills, you're going to be screwed. You're going to be a dusty book on a shelf. See I, see, I have a caveat to that, though. I agree that the best journalists are those who have a worldly, a varied education. But I wouldn't say I think that, that what's going to be key in the future are going to be classes that teach things like how to build a website or like how to like how to code blogs or how to do whatever. Because in some ways, that to me is almost like menial shit that, that I think is becoming simpler and simpler for, for people to learn because the, because the technologies are getting so much better. You know, in some ways, I think if I could tell future like journalists what to do, you know, it wouldn't be like go and like take like coding classes or any of that shit. It would be like find the type of education that will provide you with the best type of critical analysis, that will provide you with the most type of kind of creative writing process possible, whether that is working with some great uh, writers as professors or working out with internships. So, so in other words, just be an English major or a history major? Yes, <laughs> yes. Read some English. That's what I say. I would say social sciences as well. That... <clears throat> was so helpful to me because it teaches you how to design a study. It teaches you how to speak the language of um, st statistics and um, information and knowledge and uh, logical thinking and how to how to 
really uh, deconstruct a statement to its specific parts, kind of nerdy and anal retentive, but it helps you sort of decipher the nuances of, of language, I think. All of you future uh, J School grads uh, listening out there, good luck to you. <laughs> um, and we're going to move on to a positive Here's to you. Yeah, yeah, here's to you. Yay, you. <laughs> now, of course, we're going to move on to the most important topic, which which is how to talk like like uh, Grace Hood. Grace, can you please start by, by giving us your best uh, radio voice? Report on something happening right now within this, within this room. Partly cloudy skies with a chance of rain. <laughs> Lows in the 20s and 30s tonight. Tomorrow, <laughs> <laughs> highs in the 50s and 60s. Lows in the 30s. 10-car pile up and all over. <laughs> It's it's all that yeah. Obviously, I don't have a background in. Yeah, radio. you were, you were a print reporter, and then you yes, then you had to had to, to pick up these skills. That is the Boulder Weekly. <laughs> but I I don't know. I guess from what I picked it up picked up so far, it's about talking very low, very steady cadence. Um, you know, God forbid you should get emotional emotional about anything. <laughs> so you can't ever get emotional. Like let's say you are. <laughs> You know, like in like Japan right now with the chaos, like you, you still have to be like. No, no, actually, I. But I mean, it is interesting though. I think you, you listen to NPR, and I mean, I, that emotion does come through because it is. It sometimes seems very detached, but you know, you think back to like when Melissa Block she covered um, an earthquake in China and. It was, she did get emotional about it. She, I mean, they just happened to be taping during an earthquake. And I think, I mean, I think she even won, like, won a DuPont award or something for that because oh, I I that. it was, it was an emotional real moment. And I think, um, I don't know. I mean, maybe that's part of what people like about public radio is that, um, you know, it is very steady and it's a little bit unemotional, but I mean, when you do have those moments, they, they really come yeah, I just want to hear Nina Totenberg scream fuck at the top of her lungs <laughs> for a sustained period. I, I think that, uh, that's, that's what's needed NPR. So when you, st- when you started, uh, your career in radio, did you get training on this? Did, people, did like the producers sit you down and be like, here's, here's how you talk or do you just kind of naturally yeah, pick it up. I definitely needed some help. My boss helped me out. He kind of showed me some basics. So and... what are the tricks he taught you about how to talk like you're supposed to be on NPR? What are the tricks? I don't even remember now. I just feel like you it's just, so you just know automatic. it now? They I brainwashed you? I've been brainwashed. Walk okay, well, instruct like, oh. instruct uh, me. Yeah. Give me, give yeah, me some Jerry, tips. I'm going to say I'm going to read some something. On this, I have to say. Okay, well, let's um, let's hear you read something. Okay, so I'm, I, I picked up my thesaurus, and I'm You're going to... You're already talking too loud, Jared. Oh, oh, Come on, Jared. <laughs> so I picked up my thesaurus, and I'm going to read the some of the synonyms for millionaire. Uh-huh. Millionaire, noun, man of means, capitalist, tycoon, rich man, plutocrat, nabob, Midas, big money man, robber baron, fat cat. And at the end, fat cat. Fat, fat cat. What about chameleonaire? Come See, I want to hear Grace do it now. I bet you can do so much better job. Okay, I know so, our listeners are loving this right now. Okay, well, if anything, they're going to learn the synonyms for millionaire. So yes, that's, that's important. So millionaire, man of means, capitalist, tycoon, rich man, plutocat, Croesus. Yeah, I, I, I skipped over that one. <laughs> <laughs> Nabob, Midas, big money man, robber baron. Ooh, oh yeah, see, see, the end of hers was so much better. <laughs> see, now I want to go on. I could never sound like that. I could never be a radio reporter. Um, you just scream into the radio. I need to scream into the radio. <laughs> yes, exactly. And my my only, 
think to me to to talk like an an NPR reporter, my only two frames of reference one is the shorty balls on <laughs> on Saturday Night Live, and uh, you know the Family Guy advice where you just talk very softly and very close to the mic, like you're inside someone's ear. Good day to you, and welcome to All Things Considered, a show where we talk very softly and right into the mic. Do you hear that? I'm whispering right in your ear. I'm right in your ear. Buzz, 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 buzz. I think sedatives would help. Yes, I Yeah. Okay, so now we are going to move on to the love and hate part of the Dever Diatribe. So let's first start with our special guests. Uh, Vinny, what do you have for love or hate this week? Um, I am going to hate on the movie Limitless. And uh, disclaimer, I haven't actually seen it, and I <laughs> will not. And it's not, not so much the film itself, but rather the premise of the film. Uh, which so you're hating the trailer, I'm really. hating the trailer, <laughs> yes. You're hating a trailer for a movie. <laughs> it's, it's the premise, the idea, because it's perpetuating this moronic, errant folkism that we only use 10% of our brain, or 20% of our brain, as they say in the trailer, which is ridiculous we couldn't have you know learned how to use fire and tools and (laughs) do complicated things that we do today uh you know experience this rich um mental life that we have if we only use 10 percent of our brain or 20 percent of our brain so uh the use of the premise of the movie is in lieu of that they they create this pill that allows you to access your entire brain and that's just uh pretty moronic Okay. I hate that they're spreading this misinformation. Well, good. I use 99% of my brain, and I've already seen the movie in my mind. Exactly. <laughs> it sucks. They frack inside Jerry's brain. <laughs> it's pretty amazing what they're, what they're getting but, out of there these days. But in the sequel, they come up with a pill that will allow, allow you to access that final 1%. Oh, shit. <laughs> okay, Grace, what, what love or hate do you have for us this um, week? I guess I'm hating on uh, Denver Post reported that uh, 70% of people in the medical marijuana uh, registration database are men, so kind of a, a small represent- representation. Seventy-seven percent. No, I knew. I think about seventy percent. Seventy percent is still. Oh, what does that mean? I, I don't know. Just guys are much more sick, clearly, than women. I mean, women <laughs> are more lower back pain. Yeah, yeah, we have yeah. so much more lower back pain. Jared, hey, Joel, don't, and actually, Joel, don't you actually have your uh, your card? I used to because my because my because my back really really killed me. <laughs> I needed it. You're one of the 70. So what lover hate do you have, Jared? I actually have a hate. I'm going to go with the uh, flow here. And I'm. it's a hate on Jeff Peckman, the perennial political candidate for various offices who managed to get on the ballot for the one of the 10 candidates now that's going to be on the ballot for the Denver mayor, mayoral elections May 3rd. And, you know, he gets on the ballot again, and everyone reports on him because he's the extraterrestrial candidate, and he just gets a, a new platform onto which to uh, spout off his ideas. He, like, lives in his, at his parents' house. He doesn't have an organization. He doesn't have anything like, else. isn't that the beauty of the whole American Yeah, people, people say that. This we can kind of, like, chuckle. Action, we we right? chuckle about it. But, God, please, aliens, if you're up there, please get off your asses and pick this guy up <laughs> and go take him somewhere else where he can run for, you know, king of the universe or something. But, but oh. thanks for the fracking technology. Yeah. yeah, yeah, thank them for the fracking. Yeah, that came out of the, the anal probe yeah. technology <laughs> that they just expanded on. <laughs> Horizontal drilling, exactly. I don't know if I can top that, but since there's been a lot of hate this week, I'm going to do a little bit of love. I'm going to love on something called the Colorado Kids Camp, which my three-year-old son does. It's basically this uh, soccer camp year-round 
one is just great because like literally somehow I think his coach has magical uh, magical powers because she can literally get twelve three year olds to stand still on a field. I can't get my one three year old to stand still. I know she does it, so that's one great thing about it. This should be like an Olympic sport. It is wondrous. Like watching like how to fool kids not to pick up the ball. Because like like literally they're like, Why would we not pick up the ball? I mean they have a good point. Why not use your hands? And like, you have to fool them and say the ball the ball's on fire and you have to tell them that and that's what pick up. So you so yay call our kids can't. So that's all uh, the fracking and probing that we have for this week. Uh, for Vinny, Grace, Jared and myself. That is the Denver Diatribe.